right, if you're ready for the word this morning, say amen. 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 Turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, this is the third installment of our series from Hurt to Hope. Ruth chapter number 1, we'll get into the text in just a moment. We'll be in verses 6 through 18 today. I think you'd agree with me this morning that in life we love to feel a sense of security. You know what I mean by that? The this, this psychological sense that everything's going to be okay. I think as human beings, we just like to have that sense of security. I don't know about you, but, but I like for my life to be as much as within my control as possible. I feel secure that way. I like my life to be in a good rhythm and routine, and I don't really like unplanned interruptions. That makes me feel secure. Well, I like my life to be predictable. I like for it to be certain, because that provides me a sense of security. For some in here, your sense of security comes when your health is good and, and you can experience the fun of recreation, the satisfaction of productivity. And for others, it's when your finances are stable and you can enjoy the freedom of living ahead, the blessing of being generous towards others and towards God's work. For some, it's when your marriage is strong and your kids are happy and you get to go home every night to a peaceful place and do life every day with the people you love the most. That's when you feel secure. For some, you just have a sense of security when you're successful in your career. You're taking one step forward at work and everything's looking up. Yet in God's good providence, church, what does he often do? He takes us through a sense of, or a season of suffering that threatens our sense of security. And instead of feeling like everything is going to be okay... Now we feel just the opposite. So, so instead of feeling a sense of security that good health brings you, get a bad diagnosis in God's providence that changes the course of your life, or you have an accident that, that is going to affect your quality of life forever. Instead of feeling a sense of security that financial freedom brings you, encounter an unexpected laid off, which, which brings a major financial setback, which over time brings what feels like an insurmountable debt. Instead of feeling a sense of security that comes with a happy and loving home, maybe you find out your spouse has betrayed you or has let you, and now you're in a custody battle for your children, and you're left feeling like your home will never be the way it used to be. Instead of feeling a sense of security that comes with a job you love, and a job you prayed for, and a job you're good at, and a, a job that brings you happiness, now you have to endure your job as the company gets bought out, or you get a new boss, or everything about your job suddenly changes for the worse. What do you do when something like that happens? How are we to respond in a season of suffering? One of which threatens our sense of security. That's the question the text answers today. There are two people that we've studied so far and we've looked at their responses to their suffering. Elimelech taught us to not run from our suffering. And Naomi taught us to not get bitter in our suffering. Today we're going to evaluate Ruth's response. It's the right response. She's going to teach us how to respond in faith to the seasons of suffering in our life. You see, Ruth was once very secure. Here's why I say that. She was married. Being married in the Middle East in that day was really your center of security if you're a woman. In fact, if you weren't married and weren't able to bring forth children, you weren't just unprotected and vulnerable physically, but you were also looked upon by the culture as a disgrace, a meaningless existence. 
Not Ruth, she was married. She was also married into a family of blessed believers from Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem, place of God's provision. Judah, they were part of the tribe of Judah, which meant praise or worship. This family was a blessed family of believers, and, and, and Ruth is a Moabitess woman, part of a pagan land, got married into such a family. That's security. On top of that, she got to stay in, in her familiar place. She didn't have to leave Moab to get married. They came to her. For a woman, familiarity is a big part of her security. Stability, certainty, predictability. She was once very secure. Fast forward 10 years, it all changed. Her father-in-law died. Then her brother-in-law died. And even worse, her husband died. A series of successive unexpected losses. Make it even worse than that, the one person left in her life, her mother-in-law Naomi, was about to tell her, I'm going back to Bethlehem. Which would have left Ruth, a widow, by herself with her sister-in-law Orpah. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 6. Look at the text. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. So as Naomi was leaving to go back to Bethlehem, she looked back and realized her daughters-in-law were following her. Now Naomi knew this was the best choice for her to make. She needed to go back to God's land with God's people. She knew that. But she was also convinced that this wasn't a good choice for her two, her two daughters-in-law. In fact, she looked at them and said, Go, I'm going to be fine. You stay in Moab, because in Moab you're going to find rest. Meaning this, security, stability. Your, your best chance to find a new husband and get remarried and have children is staying in Moab. And when Ruth and Orpah heard Naomi to tell them to stay, she in, they instantly went into a state of, 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 of emotional grief. Rightfully so. Naomi had basically become their mother. And this would be the last time, if they chose to part, this would be the last time, perhaps, that they ever saw Naomi. And at this point, they made up their mind. No, we're not turning back, mother-in-law. Instead, they insisted to return with her to Bethlehem. Here's the thing. I don't think in this moment that, that, that Ruth and Orpah really understood the risk involved with going back to Bethlehem as foreign Moabitess women in Bethlehem. I don't think they understood the risk. And so Naomi wants to introduce them to the risk. And look at verse 11. She does that. Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry or wait for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, or no, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What's Naomi saying? She says, I know I'm all you have left. I know you can't stand the thought of being apart from me, but listen, this is not a smart choice if you go back to Bethlehem. And here's why. Naomi was old. 
She knew, and we know, old women don't typically have babies, except Sarah in the Old Testament. But we know that, that it's not normal, it's not likely, and, and Naomi said, I'm too old to have a son. But she went into a hypothetical situation, just out of a sense of grace, and said, let's pretend like I did have a son in my old age. You could take advantage of what they call Leverite marriage in that day. And, and, and Leverite marriage cl clearly said this. It was a custom in which a brother would marry his widowed sister-in-law for the purpose of carrying on the family name. It was perfectly appropriate. So you could wait and have that. And let's say, I have a son of my old age. That might happen. But Ruth, listen, you're still not going to wait that long until he grows to be the appropriate age to marry you. And by the time he grows to be the appropriate age to marry you, it's going to be too old for y'all to have kids. It's just not smart. It's not wise. Now, being removed from the biblical script, watch here. We know, at least I know, that the right thing for Ruth and Orpah to do was to still go back to Bethlehem. But I'm not emotionally tied to this story. I'm not in the middle of this situation. Because for them, doing the right thing and responding to their suffering in the right way meant they would instantly lose their sense of security as compared to the sense of security they would for sure have in getting remarried in Moab. Which meant this, these two ladies, these two young widow women, were at a crossroads. Their suffering brought them to a choice. They could stay in Moab, watch, where there's a tangible sense of security. Or they could go to Bethlehem, despite their mother-in-law's counsel, to not do that, even though Bethlehem offers no tangible sense of security. And I found that our suffering often brings us to the same crossroads, doesn't it? It often forces us to make the same choice, to follow God in suffering, even though that suffering threatens our sense of security, or to just choose in the moment whatever offers a clear, tangible, more comfortable sense of security in existence. Think about it. When you're suffering in some way physically or financially or emotionally or relationally or vocationally, you could choose what Elimelech chose. You could choose to run to Moab. The nearest Moab to find security. For some that might be a drink. For others it would be a drug or a pill or an image or a sexual relationship. For some in here it would be food. It would be a spending spree. It would be something new like a new job or a new house or a new car or a new town or a new church. Anything in the moment to find a more secure existence. Or you could choose to respond like Naomi and you can play the victim and you can get bitter. Which would mean you would blame God and you would repel people that God sent into your life to help you. And you would willfully be negative and stay negative And you would choose to focus only on what you've lost in, instead of what you have left. Because that's the easy choice. That's the comfortable choice. And in some weird way that choice makes us feel in control. That's where Ruth was. That's where some of you are, at a crossroads. She couldn't make the choice her father-in-law made. She couldn't make the choice her mother-in-law made. But verse 14 tells us she made the right choice. Look at it, verse 14. And they, that's the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, lifted up their voice and wept again because women cry. At least they knew what they were crying about. Somebody say amen. Come on, ladies. No, it's the truth. And watch here the two responses. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave 
unto her. Look up here. As the reality of their parting set in, more tears begin to flow. Orpah made the choice to kiss her mother-in-law, tell her goodbye, and stay in Moab where there was a tangible sense of security. She said, thanks, but no thanks. All will follow God this far. Yet Ruth wouldn't let go. The word there, she clave unto her. Could you imagine the cleaving? Could you imagine Ruth perhaps on her knees holding the ankles of Naomi? Maybe if she didn't want to get you know, that low, she would have perhaps grabbed her waist. Or she would have clasped onto her hand and said, I will not let go. In fact, that same Hebrew word, clave, is the same word that Jesus used when Adam and Eve first got married in the garden and he said unto them, leave your father and mother and cleave to one another. In fact, the Hebrew word shows us that it's like the strongest commitment. It represents an intimate commitment, both physically and emotionally. And this is the exact posture, church. Listen. The exact posture we need to be in when we're going through a season of suffering in our lives. We need to be clinging to God. We need to be fully committed to God. Even though he offers no tangible sense of security, we must be committed to holding on to the one who will never let go of us. I'm talking about when an unexpected health issue arises. Threatens the security you find in a life of recreation and productivity. Hey, hold on to Jesus. When the one relationship you, you, you counted on being forever falls apart before your very eyes and you have to feel guilt and shame and even insecurity of taking your kids through a messy divorce and the house of your dreams is now a nightmare, hold on to Jesus. When God disappoints your expectations and it feels like you'll never get married or remarried and it never feels like you'll have that family you dreamed of and it never feels like you'll advance in the career that promised you so much at first and when your future feels less secure by the minute, hold on to Jesus. Well, that's good preaching. But how is that possible? Wouldn't it be so much easier to do what Elimelech did and just run from it? I would rather just do what Naomi did and sulk in my bitterness for a while. Or I'll even do what Orpah did and I'll say, God, thanks, but no thanks. I only committed to go this far, but I can't go any farther if you don't offer me clear direction and security and certainty. I get the good preaching, Brother Tyler, but how do I hold on to Jesus when holding on to him doesn't feel very secure right now? Well, Ruth shows us how that level of commitment to the Lord during our suffering can happen. And we might be tempted to think at first glance of the narrative that, that it's all about some familial loyalty and tie that she had to Naomi. It was the fact that I'm not leaving. You're my mom now. We have the same last name. I'm loyal to you. But we're going to figure out with Ruth's explanation in verse 16 or 17, it wasn't about her love for Naomi. It was more about her faith in Naomi's God. Right. Let's break down verse 16 and 17 by the phrase. She said, where thou goest, well, let me start at the beginning. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. She's saying, I'm going with you, even if it means I have to 
go to an unfamiliar and, and an uncomfortable place. She says, thy people shall be my people. Watch, every phrase is going to build on the next. Thy people shall be my people. So I'm going with you even if I have to renounce my culture and embrace the Israelites as my new people. And thy God, here it is, thy God shall be my God. Most importantly, Naomi, I'm renouncing my allegiance to the false god, Shemosh, and I'm pledging all my allegiance to the true God, Jehovah. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. This isn't a temporary commitment. I'm not turning over a new leaf. It's not January 1st and making a New Year's resolution. This is a permanent commitment to follow God. And the Lord do so to me. And more also, if aught but death part thee and me. I'm so serious, Naomi, about this commitment that I'm inviting God's punishment upon my life if I turn back from it. That is called faith. Ruth's commitment to God, cleaving to Naomi, was a result of her faith in Naomi's God. The God that in that moment didn't offer her a clear, tangible sense of security. Ruth listened to it, and you know what Ruth did? I mean, Naomi, rather. You know what Naomi did? She said this. Okay, I'm not changing your mind. No, so she said, look at verse 18. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. It finally dawned on her. Ruth's not changing her mind. Finally dawned on her, wow, Ruth's faith in God is absolutely 100% authentic. And she used this word, steadfastly minded. That word steadfast is interesting, means unwavering. It means determined. It means strong. It means courageous. In fact, it was a word that in that time they used to describe their frontline soldiers. You know you only put soldiers on the front line who are steadfast who are determined, who are unwavering, meaning they, they aren't going to get scared. They're not going to all of a sudden see the enemy and retreat. They're steadfast. They're courageous. They're determined. And that's the word that God inspired the, the narrator to write to describe Ruth's faith, in the, Ruth's faith in the midst of suffering. She is like a soldier on the front line. She can't be talked out of it. She can't be scared out of it. She, she can't be intimidated out of it. It's illogical. It's going to be risky. It doesn't make sense on the books. But her faith in God follows God even though God doesn't offer a clear sense of security. Which brings us to really the overarching idea of the text and a little bit of application. Steadfast faith follows God through suffering even when he offers no tangible sense of security. That's Ruth's response. That's what we learn from her. That if we have a steadfast faith, an unwavering faith, a committed faith, a determined faith, a frontline soldier kind of faith, then when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, and we go through a dark time, and we lose our health, and we lose our financial stability, and we can't get ahead, and we get passed up a promotion at work, and continually get overlooked. And when no relationship ever seems to work out. And when loved ones die unexpectedly too early. And when we lose the baby we were looking forward to holding in our arms. And when the partner that we wanted to do life with the rest of our life walks away from us without a warning. 
And when the kids we raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord walk away from the church, walk away from the cross, walk away from the faith, leaves us in suffering without a tangible sense of security, Ruth teaches us we are to have steadfast faith. Not run from them. Not get bitter. But stand our ground in faith, believing in God. So if we'd have faith, it would probably be good for us to define faith. Fellowship Baptist Church, we define it this way. Most could quote it. Faith is believing God's word and acting upon it, no matter how I feel. Because God promises a good result. Faith is believing God's word. You understand that your faith always has an object. When you sat down on the chair, the object of your faith became that chair. If you were to go to the hospital and you'd have surgery and you're going to trust a surgeon to open you up, to fix you and to keep you alive the entire time, your object is now, the object of your faith is now the surgeon. If you're going to go through suffering that leaves out a sense of security and you're to have faith in God, God has got to become your object. So that means we've got to know something about God. You're pretty confident the chair's going to hold you up. You go to a consultation, a pre-surgery consultation with the doctor to feel good about what he's going to do to you. Feel comfortable with him. Well, you need to know God enough to feel comfortable with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the word is very clear on what it says about God and who he is through our suffering. I'll start with this. Through suffering, God will be with you. Memorize this first. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Why am I bringing this up? Because if you don't know the character and attributes of God, he's the object of your faith. If you're not familiar with the object of your faith, you won't believe in him. Remind yourself that he's a present help. This one, through suffering, God will protect you. This is the verse that I read several times to my father-in-law who died of cancer when, when, when he was in hospice care. This was his favorite song. Here's the first four verses. You should memorize them. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Put the next verse up there, Kristen. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust, verse 3. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. Talking about protection. And from the noisome pestilence, verse 4. He shall cover thee with His feathers. And under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. Through suffering, God will protect you. Try this one. Through suffering, God will comfort you. Read this out loud together. Ready, go. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. For some of you, all that verse is, is a bookmark. It's a cute painting on your wall that you got from your grandma. You need to hold on to that. Amen. Through suffering, God will hear you. Oh, I love this. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Amen. You see, the reason why I bring out these things is because in our suffering, we tend to doubt God. Because we don't feel like he hears us. If he was listening to us, he would change things. 
We don't feel like he's really protecting us because we can write down a whole list of onslaughts we're having to withstand right now. And God, where are you, my shield? Where are you, my buckler? Where are you, my mother bird? And we don't feel very comforted because we go to bed crying and we wake up crying. And we, we go to work frustrated and we leave work frustrated. We go to church miserable and we leave church miserable. Where's my comfort? God, you say you're a very present help, but boy, I look at that family, you seem to be a present help for them. I look at that one and you seem to be a present help for them, but what, did you forget about me? The truth is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't place your faith, you can't base it on feelings. Because you're going to feel like he's not listening to you. And you're going to feel like he's retreated you. And you're going to feel like he's turned his back on you. You have to place your faith based on fact. Based on fact. Yeah. Acting upon it. No matter how we feel. How do you feel like responding when suffering comes? Well, you feel like running to Moab. That's a sinful faith because then at Moab, the object of your faith becomes something contrary to God's word. And you feel like getting bitter like Naomi, but that's a selfish faith where you only focus on yourself and what you've lost and how you feel in the moment. You feel like responding like Orpah did. Yeah, I'll, I'll only go so far, but I'll go, I'll go quite a ways with you. I'll cry, I'll go to the altar, I'll say the right words, but when push comes to shove, if you don't offer me a clear sense of security, I mean, this is where I'm done, Lord, that's called a shallow faith. What you feel like doing is having a sinful faith and going to Moab, having a selfish faith and getting bitter, or having a shallow faith and saying, I'm only going this far. When we should have a steadfast faith that acts no matter how we feel. What does that look like? You come to church when you don't want to. Help me. You sing the songs of worship when you don't feel like it. You give by faith when you don't feel like you have the money to do it. You serve when really you are so caught up in your own situation that you don't feel like you have an ounce of energy to give anybody in this building. You just come and serve anyway. You fellowship with other believers. You seek it out. And you welcome it into your life, even though other believers are really the last people you want to be around sometimes. You act on it, no matter how you feel. Are you with me? You read your Bible when you don't really believe the Bible. When you're having a hard time believing that God is for you and not against you. And you have a hard time believing God really does have a plan for your life. And you're consumed with, how is it going to work out? I'm not consumed with the only one who can work it out. During those times, read your Bible. That's faith. Go to your prayer closet. Pull out a, pull out a, a big old piece of paper. And, and start fighting the battle on your knees. No, in suffering, sometimes the last thing we want to do is pray. When it's the first thing we should want to do. What is steadfast faith? It's acting when you don't feel like it, church. It's loving when you don't feel like it. It's serving when you don't feel like it. It's giving when you don't feel like it. It's praying when you don't feel like it. It's reading your word when you don't feel like it. And here's why. Because God promises a good result. 
Count on it. When you follow God by faith, even when there's no tangible sense of security, things will work out for your good and God's glory. I didn't say things will work out how you want them to work out and when you want them to work out. They will work out for your good and God's glory. And God knows what's good for you better than you know what's good for you. That's what happened in Ruth's life. This is amazing. I'm going to fast forward it. You're going to hear this three or four more times in the series. And the closing message, I want to preach it right now. I'm so excited about it. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. When she got to Bethlehem, she never once went without food. How is that possible when neither one of them have husbands to provide? God's providence. God working everything out for her good and his glory. You know what else happened? She married a godly, wealthy man named Boaz. I can't wait to preach this part to you because Naomi told her, do not go to Bethlehem, you'll never get married. Yeah, Naomi's faith in God wasn't very strong at that moment. But she married Boaz, which unlocked the door to hope for Ruth's future because they had a baby boy, a man-child. One mistake, they let their neighbors name it. Literally, they let their neighbors name it, and they named it Obed. I'm going to preach a message, don't let your neighbors name your baby. <laughs> Some of you pick weird names as it is by yourself. <laughs> Huck McCoy, Leroy, Dill those are my sister's kids, by the way. Unbelievable. Watch, watch. Obed grows up. Has a baby boy. How many Bible historians know Obed's son's name. No, it's not David. It's Jesse. Wrong, right, but close. <laughs> watch, watch. And then Jesse's son is who? David. David has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who gives birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go to Matthew 1, open it up, a big old boring genealogy is really not so boring when you study it. And you find <laughs> Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold from really preaching here. You ought to come back in about 14 weeks and we get to the end of this series. <laughs> when Ruth thought that going to Bethlehem offered her no tangible sense of security, it wasn't but a little while following her steadfast faith that she was in the very lineage of the Savior of the world. Some of you are fighting and suffering right now. And you want so bad to run. You want so bad to soak in your bitterness because it feels good. But you need to cling to Jesus. Because when you cling to Jesus... He rewards your faith. Louisa Stead. Ms. Grant, if you can get to the piano, can you play Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus in the key of effigy? <coughs> Louisa Stead was enjoying secure and a full life with a loving husband, sweet daughter. When all of a sudden suffering struck, one afternoon while picnicking, the family heard a young boy's cry for help. 
As they ran towards the desperate cry, they found that he was being swept away in a large current of water. And so Mr. Stead jumped in as probably any man would to try and save the boy. Raging waters took them both under and Miss Stead and her daughter Lily watched as both Mr. Stead and the young boy lost their lives that day. Miss Stead and Lily, kind of like Naomi and Ruth, struggled to make ends meet. All of a sudden, their sense of security was threatened. The story of their life says they lived in great poverty following the death of Mr. Stead. Yet they both stayed faithful to the Lord and watched as the Lord brought she and her daughter through time and time again. Eventually, Miss Stead, if you read it, and her daughter Lily moved to South Africa. They became dedicated missionaries for the Lord. Sometime after she lost her husband and after she saw God's mighty hand of provision for her and her daughter, she penned these special words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take Him at His word. Just to rest upon His promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, all for grace to trust Him. She wrote the last verse, I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that Thou art with me, wilt be with me to the end. Will you follow Him, church, by faith through your suffering today? Will you cling to Him in the midst of your uncertainty? Will you make the choice of faith to stop being concerned about how everything's going to work out and come hold on to the hand of the one who can work it out? Because we learn from this precious woman, Ruth, that the best thing we can do when the suffering in our life threatens the security in our life is respond with a steadfast faith in God. For our time of response today, I want to open the altars for some to pray because I'm certain some need to. I don't want you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you don't need to come to the altar, I want you to worship and sing this song of praise. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. As we stand now together, as we sing together,